We are the Riverside chapter of the Messengers of Recovery. We have chapters in Southern California and Arizona. We're a bunch of guys that either rode with the devil or chased him. We're the kind of guys that if you saw us in a crowd, you would think that if he can get sober, then so can I. We decided to throw our chip into the hat and talk about our recovery in the hopes that you can learn from this podcast that you don't have to use or drink even if you want to. We are not A-A-N-A-C-A-S-A, and no one is from the damn D-A. Once a week, we hope to bring you the message of recovery from speakers, panels, interviews, and sometimes just a meeting. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to our webpage, www.riversidechaptermor.com. There you can listen to the podcast, ask questions or comments in our forum section, browse our support recovery t-shirts, or just find out a little bit more about us. That's www.riversidechaptermor.com. All right, what's going on, guys? Uh, Kevin Alcoholic. I'll give you guys a little background on, on my uh, my upbringing. Parents both, you know, migrated here from Mexico. You know, I, I grew up basically with a single mother. I never got to meet my biological father. Uh, grew up in East L.A., for the majority of my childhood and um you know just kind of rolled the punches just wanted to fit in they didn't want to be that one that stands out because when you stand out in a big uh gang affiliated area that's that's no good so um you know just kind of started hanging out with some friends and i guess you could say a lot of those friends weren't the best um influences and that ultimately had my single mother uh, moves from L.A. down here to Orange County. You know, I was never a big drinker. I was more into, like, sports. Played football in high school. I wrestled, ran track. You know, I feel like the majority of high schoolers at, at that age would uh, experiment with alcohol, and that's kind of what I did. Just kind of experimented. You know, after high school, it landed me in the uh, the Marine Corps. I did five years there, and I think that's when my drinking really kind of took off. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just part of the culture. You know, you fight, you you drink, and you win wars. You know, that's what we did. Kind of fast forward after the Marine Corps, you know, I got out back in 2017. You know, I, I had no idea, and I didn't want to accept the fact that I had a drinking problem. Um, I had my own place with uh, my ex-girlfriend at the time of four years. Uh, I had a good union job as an electrician. Uh, I was doing good for myself. Uh, I guess you can say I was a functioning alcoholic. Didn't think nothing of it until one night, you know, I, I blacked out and I ended up getting into a domestic violence with my ex-girlfriend. Um, I was looking at a couple of years in prison until I I found, uh, you know, Veterans Treatment Court, which is the court program I'm in right now. Um, got into that program and, you know, I lost everything. I lost my own place. I lost my ex-girl. I lost uh, all the materialistic shit that, you know, people like to dwell on. I like to dwell on. Kind of just started over, right? So coming into this veteran treatment court program, uh, it was hard for me to accept that I was an alcoholic. Uh, looking back at, you know, my upbringing and my my uh, my life, you know, I kind of uh, always told myself, well, you know, my whole family does it. Uh, I have friends who do it. 
You know, I see everybody in TV shows and movies and commercials, all cause legal. You know, it's not, it's no big deal. So it was real, real hard for me to accept that I was an alcoholic. You know, it wasn't until I started attending AA meetings because I was court ordered to. Uh, I started attending these AA meetings and I started hearing that, uh, you know, you want to listen to the similarities, not the differences. And uh, the more I did that, the more I started to relate with others. And I was like, holy shit, you know, that's me. You know, damn, I've done that. Hey, I, I did this. I did that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a trip how it works, right? It's kind of a trip how, how you know, for me, my higher power works for me. And, um, you know, so about a year into this uh, treatment court program, my old ways came back, right? I was like, you know what? I'm doing pretty good in my recovery. I've been sober for about a year at this point. And um, I decided to uh, take on a full-time job again. So as I took on this full-time job while doing this court program, you know, I started putting my recovery in that back burner. For me, it's real hard to... Uh, to let go of those materialistic things, you know, especially, you know, growing up as a kid, I had nothing, right? So for me, money is a huge deal because I don't want to live like I was living as a kid. You know, I want to have the things, the nice, shiny things that I never, uh, that my mom was never able to provide. Um, so once I got this full-time job, like I said, that recovery went towards the back burner. And uh, like I said, my higher power, once again, testing me, uh, my grandmother passed away uh, last February, and uh, she was in Mexico. Me being in this court program, I'm on probation. I can't leave, you know, California. You know, when she passed away, my mom was over there, and uh, she was FaceTiming me as I see the nurses try to resuscitate my grandmother. And uh, you know, that brought a lot of uh, a lot of emotions, uh, PTSD, anxiety, stress, uh, regret. You know, because of my recovery being in the back burner, I kind of reverted back to my old ways. That following day, or I should say the following night, um, you know, my whole family's grieving. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to go hang out with my sister and my brother-in-law at their house. I want to grieve with them, right? I want to grieve my grandmother's death. So I go over there. Um, and as I show up, you know, I I see them drinking. At this point, I don't care. You know, I don't care to drink. I don't want to drink. I just want to agree with my family. About an hour and a half at their place, my sister asked me, hey, you know, Kevin, since you're uh, you're sober, we want to go out. You know, do you mind being the DD? I don't. Let's go. And once again, like I said, you know, being being fairly new in recovery and kind of just having my at that point, having my recovery in the back burner, you know, uh, there was a lot of red flags. I should have called my sponsor. I should have reached out to some of my peers. I decided not to. Uh, ultimately, what had happened was I ended up being the designated driver, took my family, or I should say my sister and brother-in-law, to uh, a restaurant slash bar. Let's call it a bar, right? It's not fuck around here. But, um, you know, it, it was a bar. And, um, you know, uh, they didn't drink, thank God. But um, I ended up catching new charges. I got into a fist fight outside the bar. You know, that took me into a whole another level of uh of acceptance because after that night you know i really took a good i took a good look at myself in the mirror and thought to myself well, what the hell happened that night you know i was sober but i still managed 
to, you know, shoot myself in the foot. You know, what what's going on? And, uh, you know, ever since that day, um, that was back in February, um, you know, being in this court program, you know, that was a violation, a violation of my probation. Um, I got these new charges that I'm fighting. And it uh, just put me in a really uh, sticky situation, uh, scary situation. You know, now I'm looking at more time in prison. Um, you know, I had to take a look, good look at myself. And uh, I hear a lot in, in, uh, in the AA meetings that I go to that, you know, alcohol wasn't my problem. It's my solution. And so I was thinking about that. And I was like, well, okay, since I wasn't drinking, you know, towards that solution, then what was the problem? You know, and it was my emotional sobriety. It was my uh, my spiritual sobriety. Kind of took a shit, you know. You know, since that since that uh, incident happened, I really had to put forth my best effort in my recovery, in my sobriety. You know, not just for the court program, but for myself. You know, I I I, I was scared. I didn't know what else to do, and so I started reaching for help. You know, and that's another point I want to hit on. You know, reaching for help for me, man, even uh, today, it's still a little hard. It's getting a little easier, but, you know, growing up, you know, you have that uh, that stigma, yeah. right? That, you know, especially in Hispanic, Mexican culture, that machismo where, like, you know, I'm a man. I don't need nobody's help. I could get through this by myself. You know, and it kind of gets reinforced in the military as well. And, uh, you know, anyways, I had to uh, I had to reach out for help. You know, I reached out to my peers, and uh, I was uh, thankfully introduced to a great group of sober individuals that uh, go to AA meetings, that go to panels, and uh, I started doing that, you know, and for the past almost year now, I've been consistently, you know, just hitting my AA meetings. You know, I go to AA meetings at least, you know, five times a week. That's, that's what works for me, um, at least one panel a month, you know, just sharing my story and kind of you know, expressing my gratitude for this program. Um, you know, it's um, it's scary to think how your life can, my life can change in an instant, you know. I don't have to live in that fear today. I don't have to live in that agony, you know. I'm, I'm tired of being tired, you know what I mean? And it's, uh, it's one of those things where, I know what to do, and sometimes, you know, uh, I like to to sit in that in that shit. You know, I have the solution. I know where to find the solution, but sometimes I like to just sit in that shit and really just, you know, let it soak in. But you know, thankfully, you know, and thank God, I have the solution. I know I know how to reach out for that solution. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been a tough road. But, you know, today I'm a, I'm a full-time college student. You know what I mean? Um, I have my own place. Um, and I think all that, you know, to my, my program of recovery. You know, I think I thank God for allowing me, you know, to continue another day sober. You know, a year into, into these new incidences, you know, I was able to get, well, let me, let me backtrack. A couple months after the, the new incident, um... I decided to buy a Harley, you know, it was, uh, it was a big move for me. I, I used to ride sports bikes. I've been riding sports bikes for about 10 years. And, um, I thought it was time to, you know, change, uh, change chapters from sports bikes over to Harleys. And, uh, 
I did that. And man, best decision I've done. You know, best decision definitely I've done because I love writing. You know, I love that 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 freedom you get while on the highway and, and just jamming out. You know, um, I also got to meet, like I said, a great group of individuals. I got to meet the Messengers MC. Um, you know, and I like to uh, I like to learn. You know, I like to learn from them, and you know, kind of you know pick pick and choose on you know how I want to continue working my recovery because there's a lot to learn, right? And there's no end point for recovery. You know, you consistently, you consistently, I consistently learn and grow in my recovery. It's really a matter of, like I said earlier, you know, how much effort I want to put into my recovery. And at this point in my life, you know, I, I'm putting full, full effort. You know, today I, I live with gratitude. Um, I talk to my sponsor on a daily basis. You know, I reach out to my peers and um, just because I got sober doesn't mean life is all, you know, happy faces and rainbows. And, you know, uh, there's a saying that, you know, in, in the court program I'm in, that we say life is life is still in session. You know, just because I'm sober. I mean, you saw, you know, I just spoke about me being sober and caught new charges. Life happens, man. And, uh, you know, today I don't have to pick up that drink. I have that solution. I know where to reach for that solution. You know, and I take it a day at a time. And sometimes it's an hour at a time. Sometimes it's a minute at a time. But uh, ultimately, you know, that's that's kind of the gist of uh, where I'm at in my sobriety. And, uh, yeah, thank you for letting me share. Awesome. My name's Doug, and I'm an addict. Patrick, whatever you want to call me. Well, my name is Patrick Douglas, but you do enough time in institutions, they call you by your last fucking name, and people shorten it. I want to welcome any new people. I want to welcome any visitors. I want to congratulate the chip takers and the cake takers, and congratulate everyone else for suiting up and showing up one more time, man. If you suffer from the same disease that I do, I understand how hard it is to roll out of bed in the morning and keep a king cobra out of your belly, a handful of pills down your throat, a line out of your nose, a syringe out of your arm, a huff out of your lung, a suppository out of your ass. Well, we got people that can relate. You know, I, uh, I'm the oldest of ten kids. I was born and raised in Baldwin Park, and then my parents moved to Alhambra. I went to Catholic schools for a while, and I can tell you that Catholic schools are uh, pretty traumatic for little kids to be around a bunch of grown adults dressed in black, telling them they're going to roast in hell for touching themselves like that. I think I already said it, I'm the oldest of ten kids. Eight of us are heroin addicts. The ninth one was a tweaker from hell. 1989, she burned her house down, down the street here in Covina, and killed her three-year-old daughter in it. And the tenth one's a drunk, just like his fucking filthy father. Five of my sisters worked Garvey. My younger brother was my celly and solid dad. And my twin brother's a retired bank robber with liver cancer right now. <clears throat> and that's just the world I come from. My whole life I fucked with street gangs, I fucked with prison gangs. And when I got clean, I didn't know what to expect. Where I come from, when you get clean, it's some guys walking the yard with that big black book that says Holy Bible on it. 
And, uh, and that wasn't for me. I didn't even believe in God. God was just dog spelt backwards. <coughs> My drug of choice was whatever you had. Um, we were talking at dinner, and I told somebody I quit fucking with weed when I was like 14 years old because I couldn't suck it up through a cotton. The first time I remember getting loaded, I was 11 years old, and uh, my homeboys told me to go to my mom and get a dollar thirty-five, tell her that we're going to go bowling. This is like 1971. So I went. I got a dollar thirty-five from my mom. We went to my homeboy Paul and Pete Vivas's house, and her dad went and got us a six-pack of Colt 45 tall cans. So they gave me my two. And I popped it open. I went to drink it. They go, no, no, no. Drink it through a straw. You'll get more fucked up. I'd never been fucked up. I go, oh, more? All right. I'll get more fucked up. So I drink them two cans of Colt 45 through a straw. I got fucked up. And it was on and popping. I'm just like everybody else. And it took me years to say that because when I first got here, I was terminally unique. I was different than everybody. I had done more prison time. I had uh, one of the ladies that was taking a cake said that she had a really rough life. And, and that's how I felt. I felt for my first six or seven, eight years clean that um, I would walk around and I'd go places and I had a big giant neon sign over my head. Dope fiend convict, dope fiend convict. And that you guys could see right through me. So I drank those Colt 45s and I got drunk, rode my little fuck, I fell, da fell down on the railroad tracks, woke up a couple hours later, rode my little happy ass home. My mom dragged me out of the fucking front door. We had a big, huge porch in Alhambra and she threw my ass on this porch. And I woke up, I pissed my pants, I had thrown up, passed out, you know. Years later, that's how they found me when I got out of the pen at a gas station. And that's just how I drink and used. Um, you know, I had a twin brother. Well, I still have a twin brother. But we started shooting cocaine. He had uh, left home when he was about 14, 15 years old, and he lived in San Diego. And he used to work commercial tuna boats, and they used to bring uh, cocaine back, back up here to San Diego from Panama. And uh, the first thing I ever shot, I was about 14 years old, was cocaine. And that progressed. Uh, the whole time I was drinking, I never liked weed. Like I said, it was too hard to suck up through a cotton. Um, I had a bout when I was uh, with barbiturates for a while. Anyhow, fast forward, 1977, uh, I picked up some hot ones, and uh, they gave me a fight to life. San Diego sent me to prison. And uh, my whole life, I was in and out of institutions. By 1971 or two, I had started going to juvenile halls, camps, placements, all that shit. And I had committed a bunch of robberies. I used to hang out with guys older than me. We had done a bunch of robberies, and when they finally caught up to me, they sent my ass to prison. Matter of fact, I was showing somebody a picture back in like 1978 or 77. And uh, on my first prison term, I heard about, you know, slapping holes, slamming Cadillac doors, and shooting hair around. And I said, hey, that's what I want to do. So for the next 20-plus years, that's what I did. 
I ran around El Monte, Pomona, Whittier. Uh, I got loaded everywhere. Jump forward in May or June of 1994. Uh, I got out of prison for the last time. And my wife had uh, moved to Lancaster, California. Yeah. And I'm like, where the fuck are we going? She goes, oh, we live in Lancaster now. I'm like, fuck you. And I asked her, why are you dressed like that? She had like desert boots on, Levi's, a t-shirt and a flannel. She goes, oh, this is how they dress in the desert. I'm like, fuck you. I need mini skirts and tube tops on mine. <laughs> this shit ain't fucking happening. So I did what all good parolees do. Uh, I went to mommy's house and pulled up the couch and put a parole hold on the remote. <laughs> Started calling the shots. <laughs> and you know, when you, get, when you parole, you're supposed to report within 24 hours. So I stumble into this parole office like two miles from my house, I don't know, two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, and my parole officer isn't there. And it's this big old fat black guy, the OD, the officer of the day, and he take me in this back room and he starts rodging on me. Rah, 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 where the fuck you been? I go, fuck, dude, I just got out, man. I was out partying and celebrating. Ah, you got a fucking problem. I go, you got a fucking problem. I represent the white man. Rah, rah, rah. Billy Bob Joe, we got us. Click, click, click. I'm like, oh, fuck. How am I going to get out of this one? <laughs> so for like two or three hours, they kept me cut. <laughs> it was a shit show. They let me go, and about a block away I went and copped, and then um, my regular parole agent came to my house, and he started talking shit to me, and I walked away from him, and uh, when they had handcuffed me, they gave me this little card for signatures, and they said I had to get signatures, I had to go to meetings, I'm like, what the fuck's a meeting? And I had heard of AA meetings when I first went to prison. These guys told me, hey, if you come to AA, they, they got free coffee and cookies and the women will flash you. So I went to this fucking AA meeting. I got some coffee. I got some cookies and nobody flashed me. Fuck them guys. I ain't going back. <laughs> that was my experience. So anyhow, uh, my wife dragged me to this meeting and uh, I'm sitting there, and my wife's a heroin addict. I've known her my whole life. And I'm sitting in a chair, and the basket comes by, and I open my eyes. I'm like, oh, fuck, there's money in this thing. She's like, give me that thing. She takes it. And so that was my experience of recovery. A couple months later, I'm all strung out. My mom told me that I needed to go to a treatment program. I'm like, what's a treatment program? I had never heard of Narcotics Anonymous. I had never heard of recovery. I had never heard of the 12 steps. I didn't know what being clean was. I didn't know none of that stuff. And they took me up to a treatment program. In the morning that they were taking me to this treatment program, finished off my last little bit of King Cobra. I did my last little fucking sconte of heroin and uh, they dropped me off at a treatment program called Warm Springs up in Lake Hughes. That was August 10th, 1994. <clears throat> My clean date is August 11th, 1994. I'm not one of those people that come in and out, in and out, in and out. I went to a fucking meeting and I stayed. Um, why? I don't know. That's a lie. The reason I stayed is because I did the work. 
I was done when I got here. Through all my using, I always knew I was a good person, but I couldn't let that person out because that's not how I was raised. And when I first came to the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and I started doing the steps myself, um, you know, because we all do that when we first get here, uh, there was no way I was going to tell you I was powerless. You know, I, get here, I got here like everybody else. I was a fucking liar, cheating a thief. Uh, I thought I was hip, slick, and cool, and some old guy like this guy told me, you ain't hip, slick, and cool, Doug. You're fucking slip, Drew, and Drew. <laughs> Anyhow, I couldn't get over the word powerless. I just couldn't get through that. It just, you know, where I come from, you never show the whites of your eyes. And in time, going to meetings, um, one of my first sponsors, uh, he had taken me through the first three steps. And um, by the time I got to my third sponsor, he was very active. He took me through all 12 steps, and he made me look up a lot of words. He told me a dictionary will be my best friend, and to use it. And I tell people that today. Get a fucking dictionary. Now we got it made. We got Google. We just talk to the phone, and it tells us. But I tell everybody to write it out, you know. Uh, I got here, I was thoroughly confused. Um, simple words like wish and hope. You know, sound like the same thing my whole life. I thought they were the same thing. They're totally different. Wish is fantasy, hope is an obtainable goal, you know. So I came in here, and once I started working the steps, the fog started to leave. And I realized that I am powerless over my addiction. As soon as I take that first one, that allergic reaction just fucking kicks in. There's no just doing one. I've never done just one. I had to look back, you know? And my life is unmanageable. Heroin had me by the nutsack and I wasn't gonna let go. And all I had to do was look behind me and see how unmanageable my life is because most people don't grow up in institutions like I did. I was always in trouble. Second step was a lot harder for me. I told you I was Went to Catholic schools for a while. I went right here in La Puente, St. Louis of France. I didn't believe in God. God had, God had turned his back on me. Nothing ever good happened with God. God was just dog spelled backwards. And through the steps, I realized that I was forced to believe in this, this entity that I just didn't believe in. And I got my own concept of a higher power. My higher power is kind and loving and trusting. But most of all, he's fucking humorous. My higher power has a sense of humor. He tells me straight up, go ahead, try it, dumbass. If that's what you want to do, just be ready to pay the consequences. You know? So I got my own higher power. And I moved on to the third step. And the third step is very simple. It's a decision I make every single day. I make a simple decision to turn my will in my life, which is my thoughts and my actions, over the care of my higher power, which I got in the second step. And it's that simple. You know, some people come in here and they work the steps, and all of a sudden they can walk on water, they're holier now, and that's just part of their journey. That didn't happen to me. 
You know, I didn't see, like Tim was talking about, I didn't see a bolt of fucking lightning. I didn't see a burning bush. And I remember talking to my sponsor about it. And uh, he was from West L.A. and he had moved to Lancaster. And he goes, man, you get hit by a bolt of lightning, you're going to die. You see a burning bush, piss on that motherfucker so it don't burn our neighborhood down. <laughs> oh, okay, wise one. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and the fourth step, the fourth step's all about cleaning house. I don't give a fuck who you are, what you've done, where you've been. Got to bring them secrets to life. You know, you want to go in, you want to clean house, you want to get them big-ass trash bags and just start fucking filling them. Just start fucking writing. Get all that shit out. Everything. Every little thing you can think of. Get it out. Fill them fucking trash bags. Don't worry about nothing else. Just concentrate on that. Fearless and moral inventory, and you want to fucking write, and you want to write, and you want to get all that garbage and put it in the trash. And that's all you need to know about the fourth step. And then I can tell you in the fifth step, you're going to take them fucking bags of trash, and you're going to go to a person you trust, and you're going to say, here, this is your business now. And it's like a relief off of you. I can tell you that I was ashamed of my family. I was a fucking... Half of my family made movies and TV commercials and we were spoiled brats. My father was an alcoholic and we went from fucking having the best of everything to straight up white trash. Straight up. I'm talking holes in your shoes. Whoa. Cardboard in there. By the time I was 10 and 11, I was fucking clothing myself. Just out stealing, running amok. I had turned in the streets. I had a lot of fucking anger. A lot. The court system tried to say that I was a, a violent criminal. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. You don't even know me. <coughs> yeah. I think I talked about it last time I spoke here. Those apartments over here by the hospital. So I just got out of the hole in San Quentin. They gave me a, a shoe program, so I did a couple of years. <laughs> I think it was Skip talking about fucking uh, the condemned row. And I go, yeah, 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 that's North Block. That's the fifth floor. I was on the fourth floor. I could knock on death row. Anyways, I paroled. I'm laid up in this. The girlfriend I had at the time lived in a little apartment. My mom lived right over here. And my twin brother was at some fucking bar and met some guy that was said he had a bunch of cocaine and he wanted to trade it for weed. And my twin brother's telling him he's got the weed. And long story short, my brother brought him to my house. And I went outside and they were arguing and there was a 10 inch pair of scissors. And neither me or my brother had holes in us. But there was a lot of blood. <laughs> when I got arrested, Covina came to my mom's house we actually went to my mom's house. We were waiting on my brother-in-law. He had the bag or something. I forget what the fuck we were doing there. And um, I went out in the backyard, and the cop jumped over the fence. And when he came over, my mom walked between me and uh, his gun. And uh, I had to, I had to make a decision there. Do I fucking run? Let him shoot my mom on accident, or you know? Maybe he'll miss her. Anyhow. That's when I got... That was a fucked up deal there. 
anyhow, I don't know how the fuck I got on that. But, uh, so in the fifth step, you give all that trash to your sponsor or somebody you trust. Just get rid of it. Just get fucking rid of it. You know? And in the sixth step, the sixth and seventh step is like stripping down butt naked and looking in the mirror. And saying, God damn, I'm fucked up. I got to change some things. And the sixth step is just willingness. That's all it is. Hey, I need to change some things. That's the sixth step. And I like to keep things really simple. And the seventh step is we ask our higher power that we got in, in the second step to help us get rid of these fucking character defects. It's that simple. You know? And in the eighth step, we get to make this list of people we've harmed. It's our men's list. You have to understand the definition of amends. What is the root word of amends? It's mend, to fix or repair. It doesn't say, hey, go tell homeboy you've been bopping his wife. It doesn't say, hey, go tell your neighbors you stole their color TV. You don't do that shit. I mean, you can if you want. You just got to be willing to pay the price. But don't be stupid about it. You get somebody with a little experience and they'll walk you through that stuff. So I made this list. And my sponsor told me that I had to put my name on top of it. Because I had hurt myself ten times more than anybody else. I had put myself in all these predicaments. I'm an old dude. And I'm telling you, every day I wake up and I pinch myself. I can't believe I'm a fucking liar. I've been in some fucked up predicaments. Some really fucked up predicaments. I can tell you today that all those years that I didn't believe in God, that my higher power looked over me. That's the only reason I'm here. You know? you know, in the ninth step, I got to make some amends. And one of the first ones I made, I remember um, I lived in these big apartments in Lancaster, and my, my mom was a big, fat, loudmouth old Irish lady. <laughs> And I took out my, I was the manager of the apartment, and I went in there, and I opened her front door, and I walked in, and she started fucking yelling at me, you ain't my fucking manager, what are you doing coming in my house? And I just told her, Mom, I just want you to know I'm trying not to be an asshole today, not as much as I was previously. She goes, oh, is that some of that N.A. shit? And I go, yeah, why? She goes, all right, get out of here. I'm like, cool. <laughs> they all didn't go good like that. But in the end, I got to be there for my mom, you know. Ultimately, my my mom uh, died in 2012, and for years I paid her rent. Um, My wife took her to her hair appointments, her doctor appointments. Um, We bought her food. We did everything. My other brothers and sisters, they just move in and terrorize her, and I just stay out of it. I remember telling two of my brothers, hey, you guys need to leave mom alone. She ain't going to be around much longer. Just, I don't give a fuck how... Because if, if my mom's rent is $1,000 and all she had was $1,000, she would give that $1,000 to her kids and grandkids. And that's just the way she was. So we took care of her. She passed in 2012. We had a big Catholic, Irish-Mexican fucking service for her. We had the bagpipes there, and then when we all went to eat, the mariachis were playing. (laughs) No wonder I'm so confused. (laughs) Fuck. 
really not funny because in like the <laughs> mid 80s they got booked in the county jail. My last name is Douglas and it has two S's and it was a typo. So it said Douglaso for like six months. I'm fighting this guy. Hey, Douglaso, what's your last three? <laughs> so, you know, the 10th step. The tenth step is all about looking at your part, man. Hey, have I harmed anybody? Do I, is there any amends? Where I come from, we call it keeping ourselves in check. You know what I mean? And that's what I do throughout the day. Hey, did I do something? Most of the time, I, I'll be the first one. If I'm out of line, I'll say, hey, you know what? I shouldn't have said or done that, man. Other times, I'll stew on it for a while. And, ah, fuck, all right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but for the most part, I'm, I'll do it. I'm pretty fucking good about it, you know? And the 11th step, all about prayer and meditation. And poor Tim said he doesn't know much about meditating. And like I said before, I like to keep things simple. Praying is talking to God, and meditating is listening to God. And if you ever take the time to look at your fucking head in the mirror, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. It's that simple. You just fucking shut up and listen. The 12th step tells us, Applying all these principles to our lives, we may have something to give away, you know, and it's that simple. We're not, I'm affiliated with a recovery house. A lot of people think that's part, that recovery house um, has saved my life. I used to spend a real lot of time there. When I get on the pity pot and I'd be feeling sorry for myself, I'd go hang out with those guys. And uh, I listen to all them fucking gangsters and killers in the garage. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, damn, I got it good. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> I, my problem ain't shit, you know. I like to tell people I stumbled into the rooms in Narcotics Anonymous as a homeboy, and today I'm a homeowner, you know. Miracles do happen here. I can tell you at the break I heard somebody talking about, oh, at five years you, you hear the pop. And that's what happens. At, at about five years, you hear the pop, and that's your head coming out of your ass. At 10 years, the shit might drain from your ears. At 15, you may start listening. At 20, it gets fucking real. It gets real. I remember about eight months before my 20th birthday, we had a big meeting hall in Lancaster, similar to this, but bigger and better. And I was looking at <laughs> Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> And, and we had the birthday board there, and I would go in there, and I would stare at the birthday board to read everybody's birthday, and then the speakers were next to it. Like, oh, yeah, homeboy's coming up on 15, there's one for 12, oh, there's two or three, whoa, I'm going to be 20 years clean in like eight months. And that was a big one. And I would go, and I'm like, fuck, I can't believe that I'm going to be clean this long. I'm well into my 29th year now. And if you would have asked me what my goals were 29 years ago, when I got clean, my sponsor had me write a goals list, and my goals list were real fucking simple. Get off parole, get laid, get SSI. <laughs> really fucking simple. So it took me like six extra months to get off parole because... <laughs> I actually had a fucking argument with the parole agent and I stepped out of my guess and got in trouble, so it took a little bit longer. I got the kids to prove I got laid, and here's a miracle. 
I have a 26-year-old and a 27-year-old that never seen me drink or use. Never. Show you where my head was at when I got clean. I thought I was somebody. I thought I was a gangster. I have a son named Dillinger. I got a daughter named Babyface, and I had a dog named Muggsy. Yeah. So when I tried to get SSI, because don't you know I'm a dope fiend, and they were giving it out back then, and I had been on and off the methadone program numerous times, and they told me I was going to get it at three and a half years clean. I went to court, and the judge told me he didn't believe anything I said in the leave. So I went to a meeting and shared that I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't get SSI. I need my little five or $600 a month because I'll be rolling. Somebody told me, why don't you get a job? Oh, go job. <laughs> Anybody need a tear tender out here? <laughs> so I did what all good dope fiends do. I turned to the streets and I became a nice little fucking handyman. I started a construction company and I've been very blessed. <clears throat> I travel the western state working on big restaurants and um, it's been good to me. And now I don't know what to do it because it's like it, it's turned into a fucking monster. It's it's work is what it is. It's fucking work. It never. I'm sitting there at the beginning of the meeting. They're texting me. Hey, you know, a roofer. We need a roofer over here in Fresno. And I'm like, God, no, 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 man, sorry. Miracles do happen in Narcotics Anonymous. If you are unloaded, this fucking moment, you are truly a fucking miracle. And if you're anything like me, you don't think that's a big fucking deal. But at like 25, 26 years clean, I realize that I'm not supposed to be here. None of us are supposed to be here. If you would have taken the poison that I put in my body and gave it to a regular fucking Joe citizen, they wouldn't survive. The disease of addiction is cunning, baffling, and insidious. The disease will tell you you don't fit in here. You don't look like us. You didn't shoot enough dope. One of my best friends told me he didn't belong in Narcotics Anonymous because he didn't do enough jail time. And I told him, well, how the fuck do you think I feel? That's all I did was jail time. And we're sitting in the same spot next to each other. The last house on the block. Narcotics Anonymous is the greatest thing since sliced fucking bread. All you have to do is work the program in Narcotics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous works every fucking time. It's when you don't work it. If a lot of people come in here and sit on their laurels and that's what they're going to get. They're not going to put in the work. And that's their business. Since I've been clean... The disease never ceases. Since I've been clean, four of my sisters have OD'd and died. And my brother, that was my crime partner, my cell in Soledad, he had a bad liver, and he hung himself. Both of my parents have died. I almost went broke. Um, I've been through a lot of fucking bullshit. My best friend died. Just boom. One day he had a stomachache. Boom. Eight hours later, dead. One of the greatest things I did since I've been clean is join the Messengers of Recovery. You know, as we get older, we like to do certain things, and um, <coughs> I watched this club form, 
And um, I told you I'd been around this stuff my whole life. And I said, you know what, man? The opportunity arose. The definition of luck is preparation meeting opportunity. And that's exactly what happened. You know, and it's one of the best things I've done in my recovery. If you're struggling today, if you really think you can't stay clean tonight, you need to call somebody. You need to fucking call somebody. Somebody will babysit you. When I came into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, I did not know what to expect, but I quickly learned that everything is legal in Narcotics Anonymous. Everything, stealing cars, homicide, suicide, whatever you want to do is legal. The illegal thing in Narcotics Anonymous is getting loaded. We don't get loaded no, no matter what. And you know what? That's a lot of fucking no matter what. For a person like me not to get loaded today, it's fucking hard. But it can be done. It isn't easy, but it's simple as fuck. It's so simple they numbered it for us, 1 through 12. It really is simple. The last thing I want to say is uh, thank you guys for listening to my fucking chaos. And uh, I may not be the man I should be, and I may not be the man I could be, but thank motherfucking God I ain't the man I used to be. My name's Doug. I'm out. That was it for tonight from the Messengers of Recovery, Riverside. Make sure you tune in next week.